I realized there had to be another way out of that. A new holiday was born. A festivus for the rest of us. This new holiday of yours is scratching me right where I itch. Let's do it then. All right. Festivus is back. Ladies and gentlemen, we The world is, uh, you know, it's got its uh, trouble points about ufology, one of them being that the nasty, noisy negativists are really beaten on it, not with facts, but with fiction. There are a lot of con men out there, a lot of people can lie very convincingly, (laughs) any woman will tell you. interesting sevens. I'm 77 this year, and this is your seventh show. That tells you something. I don't know what. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure what yet, but we'll (laughs) we'll have to find out. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it's the Banal of America Audio Holiday Special featuring Stanton Friedman. Happy Holidays! With your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? Uh, this is Tim Benal of BenalofAmerica.com with the 7th Annual BOA Audio Holiday Special. That's right, folks. It is time once again for the Yuletide tradition like no other, our annual celebration of the holidays featuring the iconic father of modern-day ufology, Stanton Friedman. I hope all of the amazing BOA Audio listeners out there are having a fantastic holiday season. Personally, I am thrilled that this tradition has reached its seventh year. I am just stunned at the longevity of this holiday special and how it just keeps getting bigger and bigger every year. And this year, my friends, is no exception. It is a jam-packed conversation covering just a myriad of topics. Let me give you the rundown. We're going to get an update from Stan on his travels of the past year. He's been to Saudi Arabia, Poland, Brazil, and all over the United States as well. He's going to talk about those experiences. Beyond that, he's going to give his take on the recent spate of disclosure petitions circulating within ufology over the last few months. He will respond to the Skeptical Inquirer's recent debunking of the Exeter case, and will get his take on one topic we've been talking about on the program for quite some time, the apparent malaise that has afflicted ufology in recent years, and he'll also touch on the ignorance of academia when it comes to the UFO phenomenon. Then, of course, we turn the program over to the BOA Audio listeners for our traditional Ask Stanton Friedman mailbag. And this year, we feature a whopping 23 questions from BOA Audio listeners that cover such diverse topics as the world economic crisis, the Bentwaters incident, the Fukushima meltdown, ball lightning, the Betty and Barney Hill case, and the Higgs boson particle. And that's just scratching the surface of the BOA Audio listener questions. Of course, we covered tons and tons more. Altogether, it is one of the most anticipated and beloved episodes of the year as we once again welcome the father of modern-day ufology, Stanton Friedman, 
and celebrate the holiday season in style. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Stanton Friedman, please crawl out from the cave in which you live and let me give you the bio on Ufology's Great One. Stanton Friedman received BS and MS degrees in physics from the University of Chicago in 1955 and 1956. He was employed for 14 years as a nuclear physicist for such companies as GE, GM, Westinghouse, TRW Systems, Aerojet General Nucleonics, and McDonnell Douglas on such advanced, classified, and eventually canceled projects as nuclear aircraft, fission and fusion rockets, and nuclear power plants for space. He has provided written testimony to congressional hearings, appeared twice at the United Nations, and has been a pioneer in many aspects of ufology, including Roswell, Majestic 12, the Betty Hill Marjorie Fish star map work, crashed saucers, flying saucer technologies, and challenges to the SETI, silly effort to investigate cultists. He is the author of the books Top Secret Magic and Crash at Corona, the definitive study of the Roswell incident, and his magnum opus, Flying Saucers and Science. Additionally, he is the co-author, along with Kathleen Martin, of two books, Captured, about the Betty and Barney Hill abduction case, and Science Was Wrong. His website is www.stantonfriedman.com, and let me spell that one for you folks, S-T-A-N-T-O-N. F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N dot com. StantonFriedman.com. Check it out. And with all that said, pour yourself a glass of eggnog, my friends. Grab a handful of gingerbread cookies, because it's time to rock and roll. This interview was recorded on December 12th, 2011. It's the 7th Annual BOA Audio Holiday Special, featuring Stanton Friedman. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the 7th Annual BOA Audio Holiday Special featuring, of course, the father of modern-day ufology, Stanton Friedman. Every year I just heap platitudes onto this guy, and uh, you've sent us so many questions for him that <laughs> I'm going to try and keep everything short this year. Uh, he's the author of Crash at Corona, also Top Secret Magic, as well as Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience and Flying Saucers and Science, as well as Science Was Wrong. And this year he was a contributor to the new book, UFOs and Aliens. So he's been extremely active, traveled all over the world this year. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about a whole bunch of stuff. I love this special so much. It really brightens my whole holiday season when I talk to Stan and know we're going to do it and have it in the can afterwards and just know that uh, it's going out to all, so many folks and so many people look forward to it and email me all year long about it. So it's it's a thrill and it's just stunning that we've made it seven years here with this tradition and Stan's been such a huge part of it. And, uh, you know, it's time to do it once again. Welcome back to the show, Stan. Happy holidays. Glad to be on again, and interesting sevens. I'm 77 this year, and this is your seventh show. That tells you something. I don't know what. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure what yet, but we'll, <laughs> we'll have to find out. Um, so, yeah, as I said, an exciting year for you. You traveled all over the place. Uh, I was a little incredulous looking back. There I was in Saudi Arabia, in Warsaw, Poland, in Sao Paulo, Brazil, in St. John's, Newfoundland. And I think it was eight or ten different states. Uh, and uh, who knew? Uh, you know, I haven't been to Saudi Arabia before, so that was quite a treat. Uh, 
So it, it, it's just an indication that there's worldwide interest in the subject. Absolutely, yeah, and it's growing every year, it seems. Uh, it seems a lot of these other countries are, are developing quite an interest. Uh, not that they hadn't before, but it seems more vocal or something. I'm not sure yes. exactly what it is. Yeah, I think they're opening up a bit, and uh, it really took guts for the guys in Saudi Arabia. I mean, that was the fifth annual global competitiveness forum. If you wanted to attend, it cost you $4,000. It's kind of an elite group of people, as you can imagine, you know, the yeah. chief test pilot for Boeing and uh, head of Google and uh, all this sort of stuff. And so that was intriguing that they would have a session on contact with outer space, a panel of five, and there was no competing session at the same time. And they had uh, Michel Kaku and Jacques Vallée, who you don't see very often at these things, and... Uh, a uh, guy from England, Nick Pope, and myself, and an Arab scholar. And we had 75 minutes of the time of these uh, fancy people. And uh, contact with outer space. My thrust, incidentally, and something that, that's part and parcel of this whole subject, was that uh, we need innovation. And Friedman's mantra is that technological progress comes from doing things differently in an unpredictable way. And so if you want to find new ideas for how to solve old problems, look to the people who have already done so. <laughs> and the aliens coming here have obviously solved a few problems a little more effectively than we have, since we haven't gone out there very far. So, uh, you know, and I, I showed slides of... Uh, Oh, a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier, and awed them by pointing out that it can operate for 18 years without refueling. Try that with a gas-powered engine. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was the reaction of these? Because I take it then, I wouldn't go so far maybe to say they were power brokers, but certainly there were people, you know, uh, an echelon above my pay scale, let's say. <laughs> well, at, at, <laughs> you know, at one lunch, I, I asked a guy, uh, he, they, they're investment people, and uh, how much money do you guys handle? Uh, oh, about $150 billion. <laughs> Oh, wow. <laughs> a little out of my price range. I hope they uh, paid for lunch then. Uh, no, th that was part of the package. Oh, God. And, 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 but... You know, so the speaker at the first one of these five that have been held so far, and there's another one coming up in January, was uh, uh, Bill Gates. Oh, wow. And the speaker, the keynote speaker last year was Bill Clinton. <laughs> so we're not talking about, you know, little guys off in a corner here. And people were saying to me, why the heck would Saudi Arabia, which is soaking in oil, have a global competitiveness forum. What do they care? Well, right after I got back was the big fuss in Egypt. And it's clear in the Arab world that birth rates are high, poverty is great, there's not enough uh, investment in businesses to make jobs for people. Uh, they need to do something to keep the natives from getting too restless, so to speak, mm -hmm. as you saw what happened in Egypt and uh, Libya and their still things going on in uh, Syria and other places. And so I was pleased to see that women were getting seemingly a fair shake, uh, which is unheard of in that part of the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> there were women participants. Uh, they were non-discriminatory. I asked before I went, I uh, sent them a note saying, people are wondering if I'm crazy for going there. I mean, you're Jewish, Dan. Have you forgotten? You know. <laughs> <laughs> no. So I sent them a little note saying... Uh, 
you know, is there a problem? I don't want to go all that long way and have somebody saying, you can't come in the door. Yeah, yeah. And I got a note back saying, no, there's no problem. We've had many Jewish participants, and uh, and there was no problem. And uh, people forget Arabs and Jews are both Semites. And it, it could have been, uh, looking around the, the room, it could have been a, a, a cousin's club from my father, because... Could, he could have passed if he was there <laughs> as an Arab. And uh, it, it was very interesting that guys at this level are taking a subject like this seriously. Yeah. Uh, and so you have to respect that. Now, Warsaw, Poland, I'd been to Poland before, but I was brought in by the Polish UFO Society, and they wanted to know what I felt about Warsaw, and it had changed. When I was there, the Russians were in charge. And it was a drab, blah place. <laughs> and we were at a shopping mall. They took me out, and we went to other places. And it, it's modernized. It's going on. And there was a good crowd. And no, I don't speak Polish. They had an interpreter there. <laughs> but, uh, there were people asking questions and stuff. So that was interesting. I've been to Brazil before, and I knew about their interest. Good crowds, a variety of people. You know, you just sense that the rest of the world is kind of wanting to get involved in this subject. Yeah. Uh, and so, and I, I found a new wrinkle twice this past year. I spoke at paranormal conferences at casinos. Oh, nice. So you got the, got the casino circuit on, on the horizon then. <laughs> well, it would be nice. I mean, they all they want to do is bring people in to spend money gambling, of yeah. course. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's a nice place, and the hotel's part of the casino, you know, you don't have to go very far, and uh, it, quite an attraction. So uh, I was intrigued by that, a whole new approach, and I don't mean mine being part of the paranormal crew, if you will, uh, you know, so that was interesting. And then, of course, there was MUFON and Roswell, and oh, I don't need to tell you that New Hampshire had several events. Of, That's you know, right, yeah. Yeah, I went to three drastically different events in New Hampshire this past year. One was the second annual Exeter UFO conference. And we'll have to talk about a new explanation for the incident at Exeter. Uh, off the wall explanation, but we'll get to that. <laughs> the, the second was the 50th anniversary celebration of the Betty and Barney Hill case. Mm hmm at Indian Head, and Kathleen Martin and I both spoke, and they have already announced there was such good interest that they're having a second, oh, <laughs> a second great. 50th anniversary <laughs> <laughs> this coming September uh, at, Indian, at the Indian Head Resort. And again, it's an indicator uh, that they, had, they were full of capacity, and so people are interested. We're on a bus, went around to where the events took place, you know, and all that oh, stuff. Oh, nice, nice, nice. I might have to check so, it out next year, yeah. You know, and uh, the third thing I did was uh, quite different. Uh, Krista McAuliffe and Alan Shepard, uh, Discovery Center. You remember Christy? She was the mm -hmm. school teacher on Challenger? Yep. Uh, and so uh, they brought me in, and I talked. <laughs> They, they they have kids coming to these places, of course. Yeah. You know, the school bus tours, so to speak. And so I talked to a bunch of three-year-olds, uh, not three-year-olds, third graders, <laughs> close, uh, and uh, fifth graders. And uh, that was kind of interesting, too, as well as an evening program that night. So, nice. And, you know, it's not they have any money, but at least they cover my expenses. And, I, you know, I look upon her as a hero. 
uh, Krista McAuliffe, and certainly Alan Shepard, uh, our first man, in, one of the first in space. And uh, uh, so I, I think we need to do homage to these people, and we need the kids need role models, and uh, people like these are good role models. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it, it it's been uh, now in contrast. For example, there was a MUFON group in Pittsburgh. And we had two days. One was UFOs and one was Bigfoot. And great crowds, uh, hundreds of people each day, and they were wanting books signed and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and it was a going home week. I did a program on KDKA Pittsburgh. Which oh, was, nice. You know, in a big old station. Well, it was because of them that I gave my first lecture uh, and my first radio appearance yeah, yeah. Uh, about UFOs and stuff. So. It was going home week. I lived in Pittsburgh for three years, and uh, it dates back to the late 60s, you understand. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But uh, I've been around a long time. So, oh, yeah, I'm well aware so, of the Stan Friedman mythos. Yeah, it, it, it's, <laughs> been a, it, it's been a hectic year, and uh, people say, when are you retiring, Stan? And I say, why should I retire? I like my boss. I like what I'm doing. <laughs> uh, what, what would I do as long as I'm healthy and can do what I've been doing? Uh, Traveling does get rugged sometimes. You know, let, let's have at it. And as long as people come out, why should I stop? Exactly, yeah. Now, when we were setting up this interview, and even just now when uh, I got you on the phone to, to get going here, uh, you, you had a lot of opinions on this White House petition story that's been going around. So let's, let's hear yes. what, what your take is on this. Well, okay. I didn't sign the first one, the PRG, uh, Steve Bassett's uh, because I thought it was badly worded, and because I disagree with the fundamental notion that everything should be declassified. I worked under security for 14 years. There's a darn good reason for security to protect national interests. And uh, I really don't think we should be putting out anything we've learned from, call it back engineering if you want, of UFOs, Unless the Russians, the Chinese, and everybody else is putting out what they have. Yeah, exactly. Now, is this the the PRG one? Is that the one that uh, responded, got a response on yes. the what? Okay, okay. Just yeah. so make sure. Now, I also did a column. I do a monthly column for the MUFON Journal, and I won't say monthly, but occasional column for UFO magazine. It doesn't come out every month. So. <laughs> uh, and pointing out the problems with the White House response, even though I didn't like the petition. But the guy who wrote the response, the Office of Scientific Policy, something like that, uh, said they're not hiding any, no information is being hidden from the public. Now, that is an absolute lie. Uh, unless you can read what's under, for example, 156 top secret Umbra National Security Agency UFO documents, all preceding 1980, mind you, and you can read one line, one sentence per page. The rest is being hidden. You know, I don't care how you slice it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and uh, the CIA, there are some top-secret Umbra documents. Uh, some took me five years to get. Now, they're blocked out. The NSA stuff is whited out. But uh, And there are a number of pages where there are eight words you can read, nothing very exciting. And my favorite was a CIA top-secret Umbra UFO document that says, deny in toto up at the top. <laughs> Everything else. <laughs> but they're not hiding anything. They're not hiding anything. No, they're not hiding anything. Also, we have the statement from General Bolander, Carl Bolander. He wrote the, the memo 
that resulted in the closure of Project Blue Book in 1969. Uh, the Condon Committee had recommended that it be closed because they didn't think it was contributing anything to science or intelligence, and, I, and that's one of the few things I agree with the Condon Committee. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, here's General Bolander, who had been working on a lunar excursion module, had nothing to do with Blue Book, uh, you know, completely an outsider, if you will. But once we landed on the moon, which was in July of that year, uh, now he didn't have to work 12-hour days, as he told me when I found him 10 years later. And in this memo, he said, reports of UFOs, which could affect national security, are made in accordance with JNAP 146, an Air Force manual of 55-11, and are not part of the Blue Book system. Those are being withheld. We haven't seen them. So that's part of the lie. Yeah. Uh, he also said that if we close Project Blue Book, uh, the public won't have a place to report sightings. However, as previously noted, reports which could affect national security will continue to be investigated using uh, regulations established for that purpose. And, of course, uh, we keep getting told every year that Oh, we don't have any interest in UFOs. The Air Force isn't doing anything. But as you know, uh, the Black Vault has carried materials, uh, regulations for pilots, what they should do if they see an unidentified surface ship, an unidentified submarine, an unidentified rocket, an unidentified airplane, or an unidentified flying object. <laughs> The regulations are on the book for our most modern fighters, pilots of those. Now, when Lee Spiegel, who's an old-timer in the field, he set up the uh, congressional hearings, uh, not congressional hearings, the uh, United Nations hearings oh, yeah, on okay. UFOs. Uh, and that was back in the 70s, you understand. Mm -hmm. uh, and so Lee is writing for Huffington Post, uh, the weird desk. It used to be AOL, but Huffington yeah. bought them out. And so he went, he got copies of those regulations for pilots and filed a few, uh, requests under freedom of information and all of a sudden those were removed. <laughs> <laughs> so they responded alright, they got rid of everything. <laughs> <laughs> so to say that there's nothing being hidden, you know, is a flat out lie as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And so I, I wrote a column about that. Now, as you know, there's a second wave coming on. Um, Bryce Zabel and Richard Dolan have combined, and I'm backing them up, if you will, on a new uh, petition. And it's interesting. Originally, it took only 5,000 signatures to have the uh, petition to be considered by yeah. the Office of Science Policy. Now it takes 25,000. Oh, wow. <laughs> hey, we made it too easy. <laughs> We've got to make it tough for these guys, you know. <laughs> so the new one asks uh, that there be a special agency set up to consider sightings uh, by pilots and uh, astronauts and people like that. Right. And also to have access to classified stuff. Uh, and so I've signed that one. Uh, I mean, we know they have certain things. Let's ask for them. If they don't want to release them, don't tell me you don't have it because you said you had it. Exactly, yeah. Trip them up with so, their own game in a sense. Yeah, well, whether anything will come of this, I don't know. And uh, if you go to White House petition someplace on the Internet, you'll you'll find these Bryce Sable, 
uh, Richard Dolan. Yeah, probably AfterDisclosure.com. I bet they have it. Uh, their website. So. Something like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that would be it. And so it, it'll be interesting. It's not that I expect much to come out of this. I mean, people say, why do they? Why are they still lying? When I it was a particular case where the Air Force was lying, I said, look, there's one good reason for lying. It works. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's there's a New York Times still defending the ain't nothing to it attitude, and so if you convince them, what difference does it make whether most people think you're lying? It doesn't at all. You know, they're protected. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's it's, it's and it's a game people play. But if if we could find the Woodward and Bernstein of the UFO scene. That's what we need, you know, all the president's men and then some. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the new book, UFOs in Wartime. It's by Mac Maloney. I just interviewed him uh, for the show, and it's just... No. Oh, it's a, it's a pretty good book. You should check it out. Yeah, Mac Maloney. He's a fiction writer who who uh, writes like war Tom Clancy style books, and then he got interested oh. in UFOs and decided to write uh, this book. So, it's Is a, it fiction or nonfiction? No, it's nonfiction. It's a, it's a legit uh, UFO book. He does come out and say he doesn't believe in Roswell, so it might be worth checking out uh, for for that whole thing. So that's a popular mythology that there's nothing to Roswell. Yeah, uh, um, Arlen Andrews says that in his latest column in UFO magazine when it when finally came out, and uh, it's kind of you know there's truth by repetition. Everybody knows MJ12 was phony, Stan. Uh, I don't. Uh, <laughs> exactly, yeah. Well, yeah. you know, they're asking the wrong question. Are there lots of phony MJ-12 documents? Of course there are. And I expose a number of them in my book, Top Secret Magic. But wouldn't you expect there to be phony baloney stuff out there to sort of cover the trail, if you will? And I can never get any of these guys, uh, Roswell, uh, Arlen Andrews, uh, in one thing, he said, hey, how could there be an alien's craft when all there was was a trunk, a car trunk full of material? That's utter nonsense. Sure, coming back from the crash site, Major Marcel put stuff in his trunk. That's all there was room for, for goodness sakes. <laughs> the only, if that's all there had been, it's very simple. If that's all there had been, then the rancher Mac Brazel would have brought it into the sheriff's office and said, hi, you know, give me my reward, uh, or whatever. Yeah. No no problem. But why would Jesse Marcel and Captain Cabot have gone all the way back, following him out in the hinterland in New Mexico, to the crash site? Because there was a ton of this stuff out there. Yeah. And, of course, all he could bring was, was what he could fit in the car, but they went out later, the military went out, cleaned up the debris field, uh, the notion that that's all there was is, is absurd. And, you know, yes, there have there have been people telling phony stories about any subject you can name. You can find something. <laughs> that's the truth. Well, the, the, what I was going to say is, you know, the, the book does a great job sort of just looking back on all the all the big uh, sort of UFO events of the last hundred years as far as, like, the military is concerned and also, like, the ghost rockets and the, and the ghost yeah. ship stuff of Scandinavia before World War One uh, and Two, or around that area. You know, having read the book, I found it almost maddening in a sense that, that, you know, this has been going on for so long and we have so many witnesses and so much information and it's just like it just hasn't really 
I, I just I find myself like in this malaise almost of uh, around the subject where it's just maddening that we haven't gotten any further on this. I mean, how do you deal, I guess, with that whole aspect of it? Well, I do point out to people that the sightings didn't stop. MUFON for the last six months has gone over 600 sightings a month, I think. Uh, and people say, well, I didn't know that. No, most of them don't get any publicity. Of course not. That doesn't mean they didn't happen. Right, right. But it's uh, like how many more sightings? I, feel, I don't know. I just feel like we're at a, 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 some kind of like a joint point or something like that. You know, well, yeah, of- I know what, what, what you're getting at. And, and what I try to tell people is that we need a breakthrough. Okay, but we need the public. Well, I, I know what's going to happen. Two movies, he says, hopefully. Uh, one is top secret uh, magic being made with Don Schmidt's book, uh, Witness to Roswell. Yes, it's Magic Man, right? Yeah, Magic Man. And uh, if that gets made as powerfully as it can be, and uh, Bryce Abel has had some good opinions from very important figures in Hollywood. And I'm hoping to see him at the end of the month. I'll be in California, family stuff, but I think Bryce and I will be able to get together to see the screenplay. And so that would be one. And it looks like we're about to sign with the same people, Stellar Productions, Bryce Sable, Donnie Most, et cetera, uh, on a, a movie of Captured, Betty and Barney mm-hmm. Hill UFO Experience. And, uh, if we get two powerful movies, now, admittedly, I hate to say this, but more people watch movies than read books. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. You may have noticed that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so a couple of powerful movies might have some real benefit. On the other hand, we're still fighting a, a battle with the powers of ignorance disguised in Ph.D. degrees. Uh, this year... I had a call many months ago from an editor of the University of Chicago magazine. I have a bachelor's and master's degrees in physics from the University of Chicago back in the mid fifties. Mm-hmm. So suddenly I get a call, a call. She'd like to do a profile on me. Oh, really? So she came up, spent this editor, spent four days here and did a lot of checking around hither, thither and yon. I spent a lot of time with her and, uh, they came out with a very friendly article, lots of pictures and stuff, in like uh, October, the October-November or September-October issue. Mm-hmm. And then and it was very, I was surprised, frankly. I was a little worried, but uh, what the heck. Uh, and it, there weren't any nasty hints of, you know, idiocy or anything like that. Yeah. Okay. Then the next issue, they carry several letters Uh-oh. <laughs> from from alumni. Cause this this goes to over a hundred thousand alumni. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I still think the University of Chicago is one of the top ten universities in the country, and you know, lots of Nobel Prize winners and stuff like that. Not me, but there is a Friedman who got one who was connected with them too. As a matter of fact. Oh, nice, nice. Uh, Anyway, here are these well-educated people, because I could look them up in the directory, saying really stupid things. One of them saying that all you have are lights in the sky that people can't identify. If they were really coming here, they'd show up on radar. As if there haven't been any yeah. radars. Oh, my God. And there's another guy. I She quotes me as talking about 
every advanced civilization will find out about nuclear fusion because that's the process that generates the energy in the stars. All the stars, everywhere, billions and billions of them. It's not a massive burning gas. Now, we figured it out in 1938. We set off our first H-bomb in 1952. It didn't take long. And uh, as soon as you have fusion, you have the capability of going to other stars because you can get particles out the back end that have 10 million times as much energy per particle as they can get in the dumb old chemical rocket. Anyway, here's a guy writing in. I think he had a Ph.D., as a matter of fact. Uh, uh, the reason, you know, that's nonsense about fusion. Uh, we haven't been able to produce a power plant using nuclear fusion. And I, I've written a response. Uh, and the whole point is there's no connection between fusion for deep space propulsion and fusion for power plant. Uh, the example I give, I worked on nuclear fission rockets. Fission is what goes on in those central station power plants, mm -hmm. these huge things. Okay. The fission nuclear rocket engine, the biggest one, was built by Los Alamos, less than eight feet in diameter, but operated at a power level of 4,400 megawatts. That's twice Grand Coulee Dam. Oh, wow. Something to compare it to. The exit, the exhaust temperature was over 4,000 degrees. It has nothing at all to do with a big fission power plant or a nuclear submarine or those aircraft carrier nuclear propulsion systems. So, uh, you know, it, it's a dumb comment from a smart person. And there were several others that were uh, inappropriate, let's say. Yeah. As, as you might expect, uh, you know, you know the basic rules don't bother me with the facts. My mind's made up. Yeah, we got to change those minds. That's the that's, yeah. that's the challenge, right? What the public doesn't know, I'm not going to tell them. And if you can't attack the data, attack the people. Uh, I got attacked for promulgating nonsense for four, four decades and making a good living at it, too. Uh, <laughs> you know, goodness. what can I say? So uh, it, it, it's an indication of the ignorance at the higher levels of our society, partly, I think, because of arrogance. If this were true, I would know about it. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'd have taken three courses on it at, uh, in my third year of college or something like that. Yeah. So uh, those problems are still there, uh, and you don't get rid of those very quickly. But I'm still an optimist. And, oh, I have to mention the new explanation for Exeter. Oh, yeah, yeah. We don't want to forget that because uh, yeah. people want Exeter, as you know, a small town in New Hampshire, famous sighting in 1965, where a couple of police officers and other witnesses observed this very silent, very large, bright red lights on it object over a field just outside Exeter. Scared the heck out of the guy at 2.30 in the morning or so. Uh, and there's a whole book, Incident at Exeter, and it's discussed in a number of places. Uh, Jerry Clark's UFO Encyclopedia uh, has an outstanding article on it. Well, comes the skeptical inquirer this month, and they have solved this cold case. <laughs> now, knowing the people, you might expect how they solved it by misrepresentation, et cetera. Joe, Dr. Joe Nickel of the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry and James Magaha, retired Air Force pilot. And they came up with an explanation. They don't know why nobody thought of it before. Of course, people did. 
a refueling operation, a KC-97 refueling RB-47s. It's not far from Pease Air Force Base. And uh, the trouble is one of the police officers spent four years in the Air Force, including a lot of work on refueling operations. <laughs> uh, they made a big point of the fact that uh, in the original investigation, it was clear that what was scary was this thing was silent. Now, anybody can tell me that a KC-97 tanker and an RB-47, A, would operate within 200 feet of the ground, yeah. refueling in a heavily treed area, would recognize that makes absolutely no sense. B, it couldn't possibly be silent, uh, especially if you're familiar with the airplanes and stuff. At 2 o'clock in the morning, boy, yeah. uh, one heck of a lot of noise. And it hung around in a small area dipping behind the trees and stuff for about 15 minutes. Now, uh, that that is totally out of keeping with a KC-97 and a B-47. So they don't bother to mention that the guy had worked uh, on refueling and give other important data. So this is research by proclamation. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure there'll be t – I understand it's already appeared in several newspapers in New Hampshire – Oh, God. Uh, you know, so you've you got to play catch-up with the, the nonsense. Uh, right. I should give you another example. Joe Nickel, who was chairman or was uh, chief investigator for CSI, uh, all his three degrees are in English now. He's not a scientist. Uh, at the 50th anniversary of Roswell, uh, he was on uh, being interviewed in Los Angeles. I was in Roswell, and we could hear each other. We couldn't see each other. His explanation for Roswell very straightforward. Some PR guy made up the story to get attention. <laughs> I, I immediately said, you don't know his name, do you? Well, no. Well, I've known him for almost 20 years, and the notion that the PR guy of the 509th, the most elite military group in <laughs> yeah. the entire world, I mean, they dropped two atom bombs on Japan. The last thing they want is attention. Well, and he'd, he'd have been in the brig in, you know, two <laughs> yeah, minutes. Yeah. I mean, you know, it just doesn't work that way. Well, the interesting thing is you fast forward about nine years, and I had a front-page story on the Skeptical Inquirer, science and UFOs, and there's Joe giving his explanation for Roswell. An unnamed PR person put out an unauthorized press release. Same nonsense, total nonsense. But uh, don't bother me with the facts. My mind's made up. So, yeah. And I debated um, Magaha. Uh, he's got his own little observatory down there in Arizona, Air Force pilot. We debated at Middle Tennessee State University. And it's available on DVD from my website, www.stantonfriedman.com. And unfortunately, they didn't take a vote. We had a packed house and a moderator, you know, the whole fancy stuff. But anybody can watch it, and they can tell me who won. And again, it was don't bother me with the facts. My mind's made up. Well, the, the frustrating part, too, is like, you know, they get on you for, you know, making money off of this or having this as your career or whatever. But, like, you're trying to get to the bottom of this. You're trying to, like, actually solve this mystery. When these other guys, these professional skeptics, they're, get, they're making a living just outright lying to people. Like, they don't well, care. That's the, that's the scary part, you know? It's like, that's right. you know? And <laughs> if, they're, if I'm being uh, complained about because I get paid, and Carl Sagan and I were classmates for three years at Chicago, uh, 
he should get a special degree for being so successful at getting high fees for his books and yeah. his lectures, much more than mine. Exactly. Uh, you know, so what's good for the goose is good for the gander or something like that. <laughs> exactly, yeah. You know. Uh, so anyway, the world is, uh, you know, it's got its uh, trouble points about ufology, one of them being that the nasty, noisy negativists are really beaten on it, not with facts, but with fiction. There you go. That's a that's a perfect uh, segue then to uh, the audience participation part of the annual holiday special. Of course, the Ask Stanton Friedman tradition, I guess you could call it now, and and uh, we get tons of questions. So okay. uh, the general rules apply. Uh, you know, only one question. We don't want to hear your UFO story. It's Ask Stanton Friedman, not Tell Stanton Friedman. So we uh, we don't want to know about you know what you saw and ask what what do you think it was. Um, and uh, so that's it. So we'll just dive into the mailbag. Okay. Here. Sagacious asks, uh, he says, there is a disclosure movement which possibly you consider yourself a part of. In any case, how much do you think the government really knows? In particular, do you think that elements in the government have actually communicated with ETs? Okay, when you say government, that covers uh, how many people work for the government? Well over a million, I'm sure. Yeah. Plus the military and all that sort of stuff. So I believe that there is a small group of people within the government which knows a very great deal and that this is very highly compartmentalized information. They know that aliens are visiting. They've recovered bodies and wreckage. They've learned something from study of the wreckage and study of the tons of data we have observations by instruments, airplanes chasing UFOs, stuff like that. They know that uh, we've lost at least seven airplanes, because I've heard seven stories, of people who were trying to shoot down UFOs, military pilots. The orders were given in 1952, shoot them down if they don't land when instructed to do so. Yeah. Uh, and an Air Force general admitted that we'd had over 300 scrambles after them. That's a situation we don't know much about, and nobody's ever been told, oh, your son died while chasing a UFO. Yeah. You know, uh, stuff like that. I think they may very well have had communication uh, on a sort of a semi-official level. There are two stories about uh, President Eisenhower, and if there was one guy you might expect who might have delved into this, I mean, Ike... Uh, Remember, he had an impossible job after the war. He had to get the Germans and the French and the English and the Americans to work together against the Russians. Yeah. But there had been two world wars in which we were beaten up on the Germans and they were beaten up on us. So to manage to get those guys to work together was an incredible accomplishment. And Ike was very good at that. And he was very security conscious. So... You know, it's it's possible that they have had direct contact with aliens. But I think that they know a very great deal. What people forget is that the major instrumentation of the government for monitoring the skies, the data is born classified. All those sophisticated radar sets, those spy satellites, the NRO, National Reconnaissance Office, the CIA, the DIA, the NSA, uh, OSI, ONI, <laughs> these guys collect lots of data, and we don't get access to the great majority of it. So I think they know we're being visited. They know that there's technology beyond our knowledge. They know that there are serious implications. I mean, stop to think about it. Everybody worries about, oh, they're afraid of panic. No, they're afraid of technology breakthrough. 
anybody on this planet able to duplicate the flying saucers is going to be two legs up, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. Ruling the planet. But also, they know that people in power will lose power if we decide to have a world government. Uh, When people start thinking of themselves as earthlings, what does that do to the big shots at the top of all these governments? Right, right, right. Who speaks for planet Earth? Oh, well, hold an election, I had somebody tell me. You're kidding. <laughs> the Chinese with 1.3 billion, India with 1 billion, the United States with only 310 million? We're going to hold an election? No, we're not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I have I war. Think, yeah, I, I think that there are uh, contingency plans. But uh, I think that some few people know a great deal, and the press has been totally inadequate, and it's going after the subject. I mean, look how they bought into the crash test dummies to explain Roswell. Right, right. Of dummies. I mean, they weren't dropped until six years later. <laughs> the dummies were all six feet tall and 175 pounds and were in Air Force uniforms, for goodness sakes. That wasn't for show. It's because if a pilot gets out of an airplane in a hurry, he's in uniform. Yeah. And that affects the drag, the heating, the temperature, all that sort of thing. So it made sense that it would be like that. But none were dropped until six years after Roswell. But the New York Times carried it on the front page above the soap fold on a Sunday, mind you. There's no better spot for newspaper coverage than that. Yeah. So uh, there's the problem. Yes, I think the government knows a very great deal and I think anybody who says they don't is being terribly naive. There you go. Okay. Uh, next one comes from Vale. He asks, uh, well, first he says, the states of Maine and New Hampshire are both rich in UFO sightings and also have high levels of radon, which is the byproduct of decaying uranium or thorium. Do you think this would be a viable way for UFO occupants to refuel their craft on Earth via extraction from water or the environment? Uh, no. No, I don't think they're using uranium and certainly not thorium. Uh uh, uranium, if you're going to convert that to something you could use, say, in a nuclear-powered airplane, which I've worked on, or a nuclear-powered rocket, you got to get fully enriched, and that's a long, long step from that 7 tenths of 1% U-235 in normal uranium to 92%. Yeah. And so, no, I don't think that's how they work. That's old school. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they'd probably have some more advanced way of probably. Magneto-aerodynamics. There you go. Uh, Mystery Man asks, what is your opinion on the current world economic crisis, and what do you think should be done to fix it? And he also asks if the aliens are behind it. I think he means that jokingly, but <laughs> Well, I hope he means that jokingly. <laughs> no, I, I think what's behind it is man's greed. Uh, just reading an article in today's paper here in Fredericton, New Brunswick, that the number of people earning more than 100000 a year uh, in the New Brunswick government has doubled in the last five years. There's a big gulf between the rich and the poor. Yeah. And I think that the laws uh, protect the rich. All those guys in Congress. I mean, do you realize that the congressmen don't have any restriction about insider trading? Oh, if you're wow. on a board of a company and stuff or an officer of a company, there are restrictions about, you know, buying stock because you have inside knowledge uh, before other people do. But Congress, committees voting to do all kinds of things, they don't have any such restriction. Even they know pretty well what's going to be happening, huh. you know. So uh, I think it's greed. I think we've been living beyond our means. Talking today to somebody about 
look at the places now where you can retire at age 55. Who's paying the bill? The rest of us. Yeah, yeah. And where, where's the money coming from? You know, too, too many people on the tap. Uh, I think we have demonstrated that we are not willing to look at the planetary system, you know, the whole planet, as opposed to little pockets of rich guys. Yeah. And I'm not one of them, so I resent it. <laughs> <laughs> that makes two of us. All right. Uh, Hillbilly asks, if this is an interesting question, I thought, uh, if you, Stanton Friedman, were able to ask one person alive in the world today one question about the UFO phenomenon and be guaranteed an honest answer, what would the question be and who would be the person? Hmm. I suppose it would be whoever the current head of what used to be MJ-12 was, or one of the, the original group is all dead, so we can't ask any of them. Yeah. And, uh, and I would ask, what do we know about what plans the aliens have for us? Hmm. Uh, in other words, we, we fool ourselves sometimes. They obviously haven't destroyed the planet. We've been doing a good job of that, but the aliens have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, but I'm reminded of the turkeys who around November 20th are telling each other, gee, how lucky they are. Their owners, the place is warm. They got all the food, more of the food than they can eat. Isn't it great? And then they get served for Thanksgiving dinner, so that was kind of a hasty judgment. Yeah. So I want to know what's in store for us. One of the things that worries me, I believe that from an alien viewpoint, we're a primitive society whose major activity is tribal warfare. And I think they've been terribly patient with us. I mean, there are, have been 2,000 nuclear warheads exploded on this planet. Oh, wow. Oh, only two on people like Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But 2,000 altogether. Some of them underground and some of them underwater and some of them up in space. But still, a primitive society, clearly, will spend a trillion years on, a trillion dollars on things military this year. So I've been rather shocked at their patience. You know, let's start, let, let's wipe the slate clean. I jokingly say maybe this is the devil's island of this corner of the galaxy, and they dumped all the bad boys and girls here. Yeah. That's why we're so nasty to each other, and they're going to say, hey, let's start all over again. <laughs> you know, people forget the Australians take great pride in their ancestors being convicts. Yeah. They do. Yeah. I was, that surprised me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think that... that that uh that that's an interesting uh answer and uh I appreciate that one a lot. The next guy is Locks and uh he says he's a former Fredericton resident and a Freeman fan since nineteen seventy four, so he's he's a long time fan of of you. He asks, uh, can you spell out some points of agreement and points of difference with Kevin Randall and whether you join his recent dream team of Roswell researchers? You know, I'm interested in the dream team only because I wasn't asked to join. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin and I agree that uh, an alien craft was recovered near Roswell in 1947, uh, and that the government knows a great deal that it isn't telling us. We don't agree on many other things. Uh, we disagree on MJ-12. Anybody can go to my website, www.stanfriedman.com, and see a long article I wrote responding to his attacks on MJ-12. Am I showing that none of those stand up under careful consideration? We go at things, we're, we're very different personalities. Uh, remember, Kevin has written more than 80 books of fiction. Now, there's nothing wrong with writing uh, fiction. I read a lot of fiction. 
But it's not good preparation for, you know, careful scientific uh, fact followed by fact uh, kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I have found often, and I've commented about them publicly, so there's no secret here, uh, that his reasoning is just flat out wrong, and he changes the past uh, to fit the present, so to speak. Well, I didn't say that. I, he has his book, I'll show you, that we had a discussion down in Roswell. And he goes to the section, I said, Kevin, read it again. He did say that. And he reads it a second, no, I didn't say that. I said, Kevin, it's, it's good English, there's no problem with what you said. Well, that's not what I meant. I said, Kevin, I'm a physicist, not a psychic. I, <laughs> I have to go by what you said, not by what you intended. Yeah. And so uh, the same thing came up, uh, one of his big argument in his book, uh, Case MJ-12, uh, against the MJ-12 documents, was that Admiral, it's called, he's called Admiral Hillencoder, mm -hmm. but he was only a vice admiral, or a rear admiral, I forget, which doesn't matter. Uh, so the document must be a fraud. Later on, when I pointed out that it was standard practice from documents at the Eisenhower Library to use generic ranks, oh, well, that wasn't an important argument. He himself said it was his biggest argument. <laughs> now suddenly, oh, well that, well, that doesn't matter. So I, I have troubles. I don't know how to adjust the the past, you know. I, I mean, <laughs> you look back and you're seeing something different. Uh, what can I do? Yeah. So I, I don't know. I probably wouldn't uh, join the dream team. Uh, who was it? Groucho Marx once said uh, he wouldn't join any club that would invite him. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Like that. Yeah. All right. Ick Bin Albertajan asks uh, if you could, <laughs> if you could. That's I, I, I had trouble with that one. Uh, if you could change one thing about ufology without having it fully disclosed, how would you change it, and why? Change one thing. Yeah, and I, he says, uh, my apologies if my question doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but I think he means sort of like maybe more funding, more interest from academia, or you know, better scientific equipment or something like that, you know. Make, well, make I think the lines. biggest thing would be to get the media educated. That's where the problem lies. Okay. As far as I'm concerned, they've created a totally false picture of what's going on, and they don't have guts enough to dig into it. It's the David Susskind syndrome. I did a television show with David. He was a talk show host way mm -hmm. back in the 70s and got him everything he wanted. And, uh, and during the taping... Uh, between segments, he says, well, I read the New York Times. There's nothing there that says these things are real. So the syndrome goes like this. I'm somebody who takes great pride in keeping up with what's important in the world. And there's no question if aliens were visiting and the government was covering up, that would be important. However, if that was happening, I'd know about it, and I don't, so it must not be, and I'm not going to waste any time finding out about it. <laughs> so that's why it's important to have the media jump in. And you know, I mentioned those orders about shoot them down in 1952, mm -hmm. military orders. That story was not in the Washington Post or the New York Times. It was in a number of other papers. There's no question the story was there. But why didn't they carry it? I'd like to know. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, well, you know, it seems like a lot of these places have a vested interest in keeping things the way they are, which is unfortunate. Arrogance. Yeah. Ethel asks... What you really think happened in Rendlesham Forest over Christmas and New Year's, 1980-81, and have you ever had the opportunity to visit the site or talk at any length with any of the protagonists, Charles Halt, Larry Warren, Jim Penniston, 
Uh, he's heard you speak fleetingly on the subject in the past, but he'd welcome your take on it, particularly since well, it's sort of the anniversary. Uh, yeah, and I've talked to Larry uh, uh, in in New York. Uh, Peter Robbins. <laughs> Larry, Larry Robbins? No, <laughs> Larry Warren and Peter Robbins. Uh, I've talked to Colonel Halt and Penniston and so forth. Uh, I haven't actually been at Rendlesham. I have, as a matter of fact, I appeared on a long television program with Colonel Halt, and we've seen each other at conferences, and of course I've seen Peter and the others at conferences mm -hmm. too. I think that uh, an alien craft was there. Uh, there were nuclear weapons stored there. I can see why they might be interested. I do not think it was the lighthouse light. And I was involved in a program, uh, Tim Good was there too, as a matter of fact, um, in England. And uh, we were talking about the fact that and Colonel Holt was on the program, that um, radiation was measured and so forth. And it, it was uh, amazing how uh, people didn't want to hear about the facts about the case. Uh, the opposition didn't. There was sort of a debate. Uh, yeah, I'm satisfied it happened. Does that mean everything everybody has said on the pro side is, is true? Probably not. But Colonel Halt, after all, is a very respectable military officer who had absolutely nothing to gain, and whose name was put out there only because somebody found it in a document in the U.S. Uh, you know, it, it's a long story. So I think it was an important case because of the official involvement, and we've never seen the backstory. That is to say, uh, what went on afterward, what documents were sent to whom about what. Yeah. You know, we don't know at all. So I think it was a, a darn good case. Yeah, yeah. Uh, th this talk about the about the nuclear weapons at, at Rundlesham makes me think of something that uh, goes back to the conversation I had with Mac Maloney uh, about these UFOs in wartime. It's interesting you don't see, you know, you get these countries like Pakistan that has nuclear weapons and stuff, and you just it's interesting that you see, and you know, stuff like North Korea and Iran, they're sort of on the cusp or whatever, it's surprising you don't see these countries sort of disclose the UFO thing if if they get the kind of interaction that these other nuclear countries do. So you wonder what do they have to gain? I guess that's upsetting the apple cart. You know, if, if you're that's right. If People you're in a, power want to stay in power. So yeah. So even if they think that it'll mess up the rest of the world, it'll still mess up them. So they don't want to shoot themselves in the foot. Well, you know, it is interesting. Um, Bob Hastings uh, with nukes and UFOs. Yeah all these cases, it's kind of nice that we have these examples of them putting a stop. I mean, shutting down 10 Minuteman missiles <laughs> sure taught somebody a lesson. Yeah. <laughs> and that case where Dr. Jacobs, where they had the new camera and were filming a missile going down the coast of uh, California there, and inadvertently didn't realize until the film was shown, uh, saw this UFO approach the, the nose cone. Oh, wow. Zap it a few times from three different directions, and apparently uh, get rid of the the weapon. The military must have been really shook up by that. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. Pardon the interruption, but I'm Mike Wolf. On just a few more days until Christmas, Tone. You've been naughty or nice. I'm Tony Kornheiser. I've been Jewish. Let me sort of ask this one more time. Right. Naughty. Or nice. No, it doesn't really matter, does it, if sure. I've been naughty or nice? Sure, because you never know what other presents you might get or be denied. I've been nice. I've oh. been really, really nice. Something from Perkins. You have away. been naughty. You. There are pictures of you.
It's the Banal of America Audio Holiday Special, featuring Stanton Friedman. Happy Holidays! It's the one night of the year when we all act a little nicer, we smile a little easier, we share a little more. For a couple of hours out of the whole year, we are the people that we always hoped we would be. Have a Merry Christmas, everybody. Next email comes from, uh, this one's Mark in Sheffield, UK. So we got another UK uh, listener who has a question. He says, or he asks, do you notice any difference in the opinions and specific interests of the audiences whom you address in different countries? For example, the USA versus the UK. And I find that interesting as well, because as, as we said here earlier in the show, I mean, you've been to Poland and Brazil and Saudi Arabia this year, too. So. 18 countries altogether besides the US and Canada and mm-hmm. all 50 states and all 10 provinces. You know, surprisingly... Uh, I don't notice a lot of difference. Um, and people have expect that because I come on so strong, Flying Saucers are real is the title, or, or Flying Saucers in Science, that I must get a hard time. And I don't. I've had 11 hecklers in over 700 lectures, and two of them were drunk. <laughs> and the audience took care of the others. So I find this great interest all over the world. I'm thinking of Warsaw, Poland, and this is by translation, no less. Uh, I even get them laughing in the same places. <laughs> <laughs> in translation, of course. Yeah. Uh, so I find that uh, I've spoken in China. I've spoken in Australia and South America and uh, South Korea, not North Korea. Uh, that would be interesting. <laughs> oh, boy, yeah. Uh, and I find that people are interested, they are concerned. There are different levels of willingness to talk in other countries, I'd say, you know, where the governments have a tighter rein on yeah. things. But uh, I find uh, interest is truly worldwide. Hong Kong, I mean. Uh, now, what about the media coverage of your appearances? Uh, you know, is that any different? I would say no. I don't see a lot of it. Often there is no coverage. <laughs> Strange. And the coverage I do get is usually uh, fairly decent. Nice. Uh, okay. They don't know a lot, the people who write the articles, but they treat me fairly, which is all you can ask for. Right, exactly. Uh, Jeff Finn, who I presume you know, he's the maker of uh, Strange Septembers. Yeah. Awesome, yeah. Uh, he wants to know uh, what it's like to be the Elvis of ufology. <laughs> That's the first time that expression has been used. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you, uh, I do get recognized at airports, for example. As far away as Brazil. Oh, wow. It's <laughs> kind of a shock. I thought maybe this is a detective and what did I do wrong here? You know, it comes <laughs> up to me. I'm in the duty-free shop, Mr. Friedman. Oh, no. Yes. <laughs> He'd seen me on a television program, uh, I guess. Uh, that's, that's one thing that did surprise me. Uh, some of the programs go all over the world. Yeah. And when I was in Saudi Arabia, people there had seen me on Larry King. Oh, wow. Uh, and the same in Poland, they had seen me on shows. So there, there isn't a lot of uh, difference. It's nice to be recognized. I have never had anybody, you know, automatically give me a hard time. Yeah. Uh, and they're nice. Um, it is good uh, to find that people will recall you. They don't always know your name, but... They remember seeing you on. Didn't I see you on? Or I yeah. recognize. You know, the guys who have good memories are the uh, 
customs people at airports. Oh, yeah? Apparently they get training in facial recognition or memories or whatever, and uh, they recognize me. <laughs> they don't give me a hard time. That, that's, that's not a, a, a knock on them. But yeah, just, yeah. Uh, so I find that it's, it's good. I wish they'd, more of them would buy my books. But <laughs> <laughs> you heard that, folks. It is the holiday season, so go out and get some of those yeah. books. Um all right, so Kevin, uh, I guess we'll sort of leave out the last names for the folks who posted on Facebook, so we'll just be safe. So Kevin L. Uh, wants to know, do you still not believe Bob Lazar's story? Uh, I still do not believe Bob Lazar's story. There, there's an article on my website about fraud and ufology, and there's no question that Bob didn't go to MIT, he didn't go to Caltech, he is not a scientist, uh, he worked for a subcontractor at Los Alamos, he made a number of claims which simply aren't true. He identified somebody as uh, in the physics department at Caltech. Well, I tracked the guy down. He never taught at Caltech. He taught at a place not far from there, Pierce Junior College. Not far mileage-wise, very far intellectual. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, nothing's changed in the last year that would change your opinion anyway. No, so, right? so we no he's, seen any uh, now, Bob is a bright guy. He's moved to Michigan, last I heard. He ran a company called the United Nuclear. And uh, I've never said he w was stupid. He isn't stupid. Uh, on the other hand, he's lying about himself. And why should I believe anything else he says, especially when it, at one point, for example, he said Los Alamos had 500 pounds of element 115. It's got a half-life less than a second. There's no way to gather 500 pounds of it. Yeah. Uh, it just doesn't compute. Okay. So, no, Bob is not telling the truth about Bob. <laughs> there you go. Uh, Lobo asks, why after all these years are we still no closer to an answer as to the origins of the ships? He puts ships in quotes. Well, okay. Uh, if you read the book Captured, I'd say we know that some of them originate from a planet around Zeta-1 or Zeta-2 reticuli, two, two stars in the constellation of reticulum. And it's relevant to the present talk about this uh, Earth-like planet. I put that in quotation marks. Uh, which is 600 light years away and going around a star. We can't say it's Earth-like. It's only 2.4 times the diameter of Earth, but we don't know what its specific gravity is, so we don't know what its surface gravity is. We don't know whether it's a rock or gaseous or whatever. Yeah. There are all kinds of things we don't know about it, but that's 600 light years away. Uh, Zeta-1 and Zeta-2 reticuli, which have the advantage of having another sun-like star only an eighth of a light year away and being a billion years older than the sun. So I would expect they're the hub of the local uh, neighborhood interstellar travel society, if you want to put it that <laughs> way. Uh, so, and what difference does it make where they come from? I, You see... I think that there are loads of civilizations out there. I mean, Frank Drake uh, a couple of years ago was saying there might be as many as 8,000 places in the galaxy using the Drake equation oh, wow. where there might be signals able to be originated, awkwardly put, but uh, you get the idea. Yeah. Now, with the Kepler data, there are planets all over the place, and they're suggesting there might be as many as 8 billion places in the galaxy. So the, the kicker here, and this is fascinating to me, is the fact that we act as though nobody beat us to the punch on any of this new technology. 
Yeah. We're doing Kepler now, and I'm a great admirer of Kepler. I did a monthly column on it for the MUFON Journal. I really, you know, it's a neat piece of work, a darn good piece of work, and it's working fine. And, and I, I really kudos to them. However, I can't find any reason to say that there weren't others doing that a million years ago. Make it only a hundred years ago, so they already know where everybody is. Right. I think right. there are libraries in the neighborhood that say, uh, "Here are the places that have civilizations. Here are the ones that have beat the heck out of their planet. Here are the ones that have joined the Federation and pay their dues every year, and you can go there for vacations if you want." You know, I think this has all been known for a long time. Why do we think that nobody beat us to the punch? I don't understand that. I mean, I don't use a slide rule anymore. Exactly. Yeah. Well, it goes back to you know the the, the, the we we refuse to believe that the that the Earth revolved around the sun. For you know, it's like the, the human condition is 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 arrogance. You mean it does? <laughs> uh. So what what I'm saying is that. It's very important that we recognize that we're not in the middle of the universe. Copernicus was wrong. The sun is not the middle of the universe. And that comes as a shocker to people. But there's a whole new paradigm, if you will. And we're out in the boonies, nothing very special. Now, I'm not saying there weren't intelligent beings here a million years ago. There may, well, may very well have been. Uh, you know, because the place was certainly suitable for life. Look, the dinosaurs were living here 65 million years ago. And exactly. They got big food requirements and, you know, air and all the rest of that. <laughs> all right. So the next question comes from Bruce. He asks, why do you insist on using the courtroom fallacy when, as a scientist, you should know better? He's sort of a, a resident skeptic. So The what fallacy? Courtroom fallacy. I don't know. I don't know if he's referencing something specifically maybe that that you've said the UFO data should be enough to win a court case or something like that? I don't know. I don't know exactly. Well, I said it's strong enough uh, that if you took it to court, you'd win. If you go by, uh, you know, the uh, what what are the, the two things you prove beyond a reasonable doubt or preponderance of the evidence? Yeah. Uh, two different standards, you understand. And so I don't know what he's talking about that I use. I don't say aliens are real because there's so much evidence. I say... If you look at the evidence, such as Blue Book Special Report 14, uh, the dozen papers by scientists presented to Congress way back in 69, uh, Alan Hynek's book and all the rest, when you look at the cases that can't be explained, there are certain features that emerge. We're dealing with manufactured objects, clearly. We're not talking lights in the sky. I don't care about lights in the sky. Whose behavior indicates that they couldn't have been made here because if they were made here, we, they would be used in military situations. Right. The only reason for developing advanced flight technology is military, for goodness sakes. Look around the planet, $10 billion for stealth airplanes and all that stuff. Since they had, when we built the stealth, we used it in the next war to come along. I mean, there'll always be more wars. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so if they weren't built here... They were built someplace else. That doesn't say where. It doesn't say why. It doesn't say how. But manufactured objects coming from off the earth that makes them, by definition, interstellar origin, originating, if you will. Yeah. Uh, so you don't need to have, you know, if, if you have a murder, just because you don't have the killer in hand doesn't mean there isn't one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, the guy's dead, damn it. <laughs> 
Okay. Um, Steve asks, Fukushima, how bad is it really? That story has been dropped off the map completely. How much contamination are we getting? Well, okay. Uh, I mentioned earlier that we have exploded 2,000 nuclear weapons on this planet. Every one of them, well, the ones that were exploded in the air, let's put it that way, uh, did produce contamination. You could measure radiation in the milk in Rochester from tests done uh, in Nevada. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, radiation, uh, nice thing about radiation, when we do use it for all kinds of nice things, like sterilization of all kinds of medical products, for all kinds of medical tests at the hospital and so forth, get rid of exploratory surgery because you can put stuff inside and find out what's going inside without cutting somebody up to find out, uh, which is a great advance, incidentally. Uh, uh, the radiation, that, that was a, a bad accident. There's no question about that. And there was a lot of radiation released. Uh, but the Earth is uh, rather forgiving. Uh, it's a tragedy for the people involved. I don't know what the latest death number is from the, uh, uh, from the water, the tsunami, uh, as opposed to the radiation. Yeah. And so I'm not advising people to go spend, have a picnic lunch out there. Uh, it's something that needs to be taken into account. But some people want to say, well, that proves nuclear power is no good. It does nothing of the sort. The reactor did what it was supposed to do. There was an earthquake it shut down. But then there was a tsunami that <laughs> threw away all the stuff you needed that recovered easily, you know. Right, right. So it's it's bad, there's no question. And their record is not as good as some. They don't have all quite all the safety requirements we have. Uh, it wasn't like uh, Chernobyl, where there were some very stupid things done. I couldn't believe when I listened to somebody who'd been over at one of the meetings and came back with what had happened. They they broke the rules three or four times when they were doing tests they shouldn't have been doing, turning off the safety systems at Chernobyl and so forth. Yeah. But even that, and incidentally, you could sit right here in Fredericton an uh, appropriate time later and measure the radiation from Chernobyl. Uh and so, yes, radiation is being released. Yes, it is being highly diluted. And, and contrary to the popular viewpoint that no radiation is good for you, all radiation is bad, zero tolerance, you know. Yeah. That's, that's nonsense. There's a great deal of information indicating that radiation hormesis, there's a great word for it, H-O-R-M-E-S-I-S, -S, hmm. It means when a little bit of something is beneficial, then a lot is bad. Uh, aspirin. Two aspirin's great to take care of a headache. 30 would probably kill you. <laughs> but so someplace in between 2 and 30, there's a line you should not cross. Exactly. Yeah. From person to person. <laughs> so there have been plenty of uh, experiments run showing and uh, stuff, epidemiological data, if you will, showing that uh, having a being exposed to an overall higher level of radiation does not mean you die sooner. It means you live longer. There's a whole book, Radiation Hormesis, by uh, Thomas Lucky. Interesting, which okay. I strongly recommend. Uh, so I'm not look. If you sleep in the same bed with somebody every day for a year, you get a measurable dose of radiation from that person. Is it bad for you? No, <laughs> but it's measurable. <laughs> I mean, there's a difference between those two concepts. You can measure it, and therefore it's damaging? No. No, it's just measurable, yeah. Yeah, we're very good at measuring radiation. We nuclear guys really do our job. <laughs>
William asks, do you feel trapped by, he says your ETH, ETH theory, but I presume that he just means the ETH theory. Uh, he says, uh, it seems that defending a fringe topic is a constant battle and may limit the ability to explore various ideas. Do you end up having to filter yourself in order to best defend your ideas? And he says uh, that he enjoys hearing you tap into your gray basket more. Well, look, uh, I, I don't feel trapped in uh, I, my version of ETH. I, I'm not sitting down all the details about visiting alien civilizations. Yeah. Uh, for example, I'd like to know how long they live. You find out what causes death, and you do something about it, and pretty soon, if they learn to live 150 years, say, that puts some impact on your society, doesn't it? You know, you can't just keep growing. You control reproduction, I would think. You know, you yeah. can't overflow the planet with people. There's no way to grow food. Yeah. So... I don't have a, a special version of ETH, extraterrestrial hypothesis. I say they're coming from out there, maybe from a lot of different places, maybe for a lot of different reasons. I like to think of the people who were there when Columbus showed up in 1492, and within the next 20 years you got cripes, explorers coming from all over the place, speaking different language, having different ships, and they're for different purposes. Terribly confusing. Yeah. There was no one-size-fits-all. Some were there to kill them, some to convert them, some to steal from them. Uh, those guys weren't all nice guys, you remember, uh, oh, yeah. giving them blankets that had been used by people with smallpox. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> very, very successful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I do, I, I too enjoy your Grey Basket. You should think about that. Stan Friedman's Grey Basket is a book sometime. Some hey, of the more not a bad idea. Yeah, I'll you keep know, that in mind. Some of the more uh, sort of the stuff that you keep in the gray basket. You know, it's interesting. Yeah, don't know. Don't have enough data. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. You know, it could be a good uh, jumping off point for other people to look into stuff too. You know, it's like, hey, yeah. you, you pick up the ball here, folks. Um, Nelson asks, do you ever wonder if the UFO phenomenon is symbolic or even mystical? Symbolic or mystical? Well, I would certainly expect that alien civilizations more advanced than us, enough more advanced to get here, uh, accept and are knowledgeable about areas that we consider fringe and, you know, telepathy, uh, mind control, uh, reincarnation. Uh, there's a whole bunch of these areas yeah. that I think they know a great deal about, and we're still fighting like crazy. In the book, Science Was Wrong, there's some chapters about... These far-out things, there's, there's far more than enough data to establish that some of this stuff is genuine, even though the powers that be don't want to admit it. Uh, our academic world and our uh, journalistic world are strongly resistant to anything that upsets the, the current notion. Yeah. You know, for some of these people, the earth is still flat. It falls <laughs> down to, you know. Yeah. That example is our next emailer, and he says, A long time ago, as an undergraduate physics student, I was interested in ball lightning, but, dis but was dissatisfied with the various explanations mainstream science seemed to prefer. I recently looked into it again and found out that they're still invoking such things as burning silicone or hallucinations caused by high magnetic fields. <laughs> <laughs> well, I certainly agree with him. I'm interested in ball lightning, and the two best sources of information that I know about our surveys that were done, surveys, at the NASA Lewis Labs in Ohio and at Oak Ridge National Laboratory, uh, 
and uh, they did an internal survey. Thousands of people worked there. So, you know, for anybody who thinks they may have seen, they gave them a rough sketch of what the ball lightning might be like. And uh, anybody who has, please fill out a more detailed form to describe it. And so from that, you get a picture of, they found plenty of people who'd observed it. This is all in-house now, you understand. Mm -hmm. There was a report put out summarizing all the data, but without names attached or anything like that. So you weren't risking anything. And you got a picture of how big it is, uh, small, incidentally. I get a kick out of how some people think it must be, Phil Class at one time said it must be huge. You can expand, an expanding plasma. He eventually abandoned that in the face of being shown that it was total nonsense, what he said. <laughs> No surprise there. But so I'm intrigued with ball lightning, a plasma phenomena of considerable interest. Do we fully understand it? No. People have made some small stuff in the laboratory. But uh, I would recommend going to those uh, two surveys uh, to get a, a good observational picture. How long did it last? What did it do? Went in the house, out through the window, whatever. You know, uh, color, duration, size. And as a matter of fact, right now, um, two uh, abduction researchers, Kathleen Martin, with whom I wrote, or she did most of the work, on Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience, and Denise Snowner, active in MUFON in Florida. They both live in Florida. They're conducting surveys, uh, trying to get abductees to fill out the surveys that, uh, again, it's not treatment or anything. It's what did you see? Did you see the that look like this or that, you know, describe what you saw, to try to come up with some commonality. Uh, I'm reminded uh, a number of years ago, uh, a number of samples of writing supposedly seen on board the uh, saucer by abductees were being kept by researchers and not being released. So you know that nobody who's telling you a story now had read the report where somebody described it right. say, or showed it. And they had an independent group of professors uh, evaluated, are these the same? And they were. Well, hmm. that's interesting if you can get, uh, you know, a half a dozen different people claim this is what I saw, and son of a gun, it all looks alike. Yeah. must really have been true. It's hard to imagine that it was all, you know, uh, out of the blue, uh, they, but they all came up with the same description. Right, right. So we need a lot more of that. Uh, the ball lightning surveys, as I said, I'd like facts instead of guesstimates, you know, well, I think it was, they were all seeing the same thing. Well, tell me what they saw and I'll decide, you know. Uh, so we, we need a lot of surveys like that. And Denise and uh, Kathleen Martin, uh, look them up on the web. Uh, if you're an abductee and would like some information or write me, fsphys at rogers.com. It's on the website. Yeah. You know, how to reach me. But, uh, the point is you can make a contribution. You don't need to give your name. And I realize that opens them up to some phonies, but uh, that's the risk you take always. Exactly, yeah. Uh, Ralph wants to know uh, if you wonder why they haven't pointed the Kepler at Zeta Reticuli looking for the home planet of the supposed greys. Of course I don't wonder. The way the system is designed, <laughs> it's looking at a an area. If you hold your fist at arm's length, that shows you what fraction of the world around us, of the universe around us, the neighborhood we're looking at. Oh, wow. 
it's going. It's a, in a the satellite's in a very elongated loop that spends most of its time going out and coming back, and then around the Earth, and then going out and coming back. And it's filming the same stars uh, over and over again, trying to catch a change in the brightness of the stars, indicating a planet has gone by. It cannot look at Zeta Reticuli. That's a southern sky constellation. Just like you don't use the Hubble to look at the sun. You know, there goes the equipment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, no, I don't worry or wonder about that at all, and I would be very unhappy if they were doing something like that, because it would be utterly foolish with the system that they have. Okay. Great system. I, I really like it. Sammy asks, uh, between you and the Kerry Schmidt research, there are some serious smoking guns with Roswell. He wants to know if you're concerned that the Roswell story will fade into obscurity as time goes on. And uh, he asked about Magic Man, but we, we already, uh, we've let him know that it's still moving forward. So, uh. Well, look, uh, most of the original witnesses are, of course, gone, as you know. Uh, it's been a long time, folks. <laughs> Not everybody lives to be 77 the way I have. Uh, I don't think it's going to fade away, despite the efforts of the debunkers of the world, who will repeatedly tell you everybody knows it's a fraud, just as they say the same about uh, MJ-12. So I don't think it's going to fade, and I expect to be in Roswell for the annual gathering festival uh, at the early part of July coming up. It's a great time, and it's great fun. And I enjoy myself. I'll probably have to give three or four lectures, as I have been doing. <laughs> uh, so i got to work my way there, and I don't get highly paid for that in case anybody's wondering. Right, right. But it is a chance to meet people, sign their books, and so forth and so on. So I don't think Roswell's going to fade out. No. Yeah, and for folks who wonder, it, it must be an exhausting experience for you at these conferences because you can't even get, like, five minutes alone. It's unbelievable watching. I the, the am crowd. busy, and uh, I don't sit in my hotel room and go out to give a lecture and then come back. I'm at the vendor's table, and that's one of the reasons they have Don Schmidt and I and others there is because people want to talk to us. Yeah, exactly. And they want to take our pictures with them. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, digital cameras and all that. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of that going on, too. I remember that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Robert wants to know if you remember the newspaper that shut you down about Betty and Barney Hill. And what he means is uh, we had Kathy Martin on, and she was talking about how the, the, the Betty and Barney Hill story got leaked to a newspaper, and the guy wrote the article, and then uh, I asked her if anyone ever followed up and tried to find out about the guy who, who got the information and leaked it out, and she said that you looked into it but uh, couldn't find any info on it. We... We don't know who, we have our suspicions about who leaked the story. Somebody had taped a private talk that they gave. And as a matter of fact, the son of the reporter, uh, Luttrell, uh, was at uh, the conference, believe it or not, oh, wow. at Indian Head. And so, uh, you know, it's kind of funny. If he hadn't, uh, we'd have never heard about the case, because they certainly weren't seeking publicity. Uh and Dr. Simon, his papers, well, John Fuller's papers are at Boston University Archives. And Kathy and I were down there uh, during that, uh, when we were in New Hampshire there. And uh, he wrote a letter to somebody. He was in trouble with the medical community. You know, this is medical information. And, uh, you know, uh, you need all kinds of 
you need to cover yourself. Doctors are at risk if they release information, et right. cetera, et cetera. Anyway, he wrote a letter to somebody saying, look, he'd already been raped. That's why I let his name be used by that original article, which mentioned him. Yeah. He couldn't take it back. You know, there it is. They had been asked for, to do an interview, and they said no. They talked to a lawyer. Is there anything we can do to stop it? No. <laughs> so, okay, there it goes. But, uh, you know, it, it's one of those things that happened, and uh, we're the better off for it because that case is very powerful. Yeah. Uh, especially because of Dr. Simon's background, who knew nothing about saucers, but knew one a heck of a lot about helping people who'd had a post-traumatic stress disorder. Shell shock war veterans is the term that was used back then. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, you know, people don't know, he ran a hospital with 3,000 beds for such people after World War II. Oh, yeah, he was uh, he was a powerful, powerful force. Yes, yes. Not because uh, he was a ufologist, he wasn't. Exactly, exactly. Sometimes the most, you know, it's like um, it's like James E. McDonald, you know. Sometimes yeah. uh, you get these guys from the outside that really help out a lot. They do. Uh, Robert wants to know, oh, wait, he did that guy. Uh, Red Sun Superman, he asks... Uh, he references Kevin Randall's latest article in UFO Magazine regarding you, and he discussed uh, in the article, uh, and the discussion you and Kevin had about Robert Willingham. There's a very specific question here. He says, Randall claims Robert Willingham never served in the Air Force and had not been a fighter pilot and had not been promoted to colonel by Lyndon Johnson. So if this is true, why do you give him any merit regarding MJ-12 and the Del Rio UFO crash? Well, that's a total misrepresentation. I've never given Willingham any credit. I've never said he was legitimate. Whether his legitimacy or illegitimacy, which certainly seems to be more the case, has nothing to do with whether there was a crash at Del Rio. It means his testimony is worthless. That doesn't mean the event didn't happen. I mean, Kevin once said that since the MJ-12 documents don't say anything about the crash at the plains of San Augustine, it must not have happened. <laughs> and these things don't follow. Absence of evidence is not evidence for absence. I have never stood behind Willingham. I think there was a crash uh, in New, in Mexico. I was going to say New Mexico. Well, that, there was too. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, you know, this is that kind of false reasoning I was talking about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, no, I do not give Willingham any credence at all, and I never have. There you go. I'm satisfied that Kevin has dug into his credentials and finds that he wasn't legitimate. Okay, too bad. What's that got to do with whether certain events happened? Exactly. All right. Well, there you go. I don't think you can be any more uh, clear than that. So, <laughs> um, One to Believe asks... Uh, while you think the aliens changed from human-like space brothers in the 50s to a more sinister, small, gray-type alien from around the late 70s up to today, is it something more than media influence? I don't think the aliens changed. I think they're given more attention. Remember, the Hill case was the first one that got a lot of attention, 1961. Yeah. Before that, there hadn't been any encounters with aliens that got serious attention except the contactee stuff. So I don't think the aliens changed at all. I think reality intruded. And also, uh, look, I check my audiences at the end of my lectures, and typically 10% uh, believe they've had a sighting. They put their hands up reluctantly. They're shocked when I count around the room, and, oh, I'm not the only one. Then I ask, how many of you reported what you saw? 90% of the hands go down. The biggest reason for not reporting, they 
think I was some kind of a nut. So if that's just a plain old, you know, uh, matter-of-fact UFO sighting, right? then an abduction case is much less common. And if you're thought to be a crank for seeing a UFO, what if you say you were on board? So the laughter curtain is very, very real. So I don't think the aliens changed. I think the publicity about aliens changed, if you will. Yeah. And we know that there were uh, abductions long before the Hill case. I'm not saying there weren't. I'm saying we didn't know about them, the AVB case. And right. For example, I don't know whether all these guys look alike anyway. What's an Earthling look like? Well, it has to have hair on his head and hair on his face. Well, not all of them do have hair in either place. Uh, you know, got to be six feet tall? Well, no. <laughs> you know. Yeah, exactly. Get out of the mall right now, folks, and you'll see a wide variety of people uh, yes. running around. Yes, indeed. Uh, now, this this brings me to uh, my own question here, and I just sort of, I, I didn't want the, the annual special to go by without uh, talking a little bit about Bud Hopkins and, and just sort of asking, you know, what, where do you see the abduction research community right now? Because it's it seems like, you know, with the death of Bud and obviously the death of John Mack years ago and, and just the scandal involving David Jacobs, it's like, you know, it seems like you, abduction research is in tatters at this point. Uh, well, I think it, it doesn't have the leadership that Bud uh, and Dave were providing. Uh, I knew Bud pretty well. I've known him since 1980, I think. Uh, we were at a conference together in, uh, at MIT, as a matter of fact. Um, and I've stayed at his home. I like Bud. Remember, Bud was an artist, not a scientist, on the other hand. I've listened to tapes he's made of sessions, and he was pretty darn careful in what he asked. What he didn't do that he might have done more of is the background on the people. He got taken by some people who had good stories that he hadn't verified. Yeah. And, you know, I've checked. Uh, if somebody tells me they were at Roswell, the first thing I do is look at the yearbook. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and try to get their DD-214s and. You, you like to check on people. There are a lot of con men out there. A lot of people can lie very convincingly. Mm -hmm. Any woman will tell you that. <laughs> you know? So Bud didn't, wasn't as strong on that side as he might have been. On the other hand, he treated abductees with respect. He was careful uh, doing double checks under hypnosis. Uh, you know, what color hair did that being have? And you get this puzzled moment, doesn't have any hair. You know, there's a great opportunity for somebody to lie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, what's in the corner of the room? Uh, there are no corners. It's round. You know, so he would double check on that score. And he certainly treated people with respect. Uh, and he was a fine artist. Uh, and we'll miss him. He was 80 when he died. You know, I don't know what's going to happen, but I think things like what Denise Stoner and Kathleen Martin are doing will be a new direction of getting people who do research these cases to share their information, to get a, a better picture of what's happening, and to make it more respectable to speak out. Yeah, yeah, we definitely need that. Uh, all right, we're on the second to last question here. Vamp Elvis wants to know, well, first he apologizes for calling you Dr. Friedman last year, so you got another oh, one of those, yeah. <laughs> uh, and he, he wants to know if you, if you think programs like Ancient Aliens uh, help or hinder the quest for truth. 
Yeah, that's a good question because we don't get – that's the History Channel, isn't it? And, yeah. Uh, we don't get the U.S. History Channel up here in Canada. I live in Fredericton, New Brunswick, and uh, so I don't see a number of those programs. Uh, and I can't say. I know a lot of people watch them, so it can't hurt, really, I don't think. Uh, getting people aware is – Perhaps the biggest thing, getting them to have their interest titillated, if you will. Yeah. Uh, stimulated sounds better. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know. So I, I, I can't answer the question specifically. I know I'm in a couple of the shows, but uh, and people tell me, oh, I saw you on the tube, but I didn't see it, so I don't know. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's, it's good to get the, yeah, like you said, to get the word out, and it's interesting. Uh, my only concern is like it feels like ufology and UFOs are almost becoming commonplace, but we haven't again we haven't gotten that breakthrough to to sort of like you know. Here comes magic men. That'll do it. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Exactly. He says optimistically. <laughs> <laughs> is there a time? What's the any sort of no. like no timetable on that yet? Yeah. No, the screenplay will be essentially finished by the end of the month. Then it's a question of finding the money, and once you get the money, it's roll, kids, roll. You know. Awesome, awesome. Uh, the final question comes from Joyce. Uh, you actually met her in, in Exeter, Joyce Palumbo. Very nice lady. Uh, yeah, and, uh, I know Joyce. Oh, okay. And she wants to know, if they find the Higgs boson at the LHC, uh, what does it mean? Well, it means that there'll be jobs for physicists for quite a while. <laughs> and uh, people trying to get research money to uh, dig deeper into what the heck that does mean. Uh, for most of us, it won't mean anything. That's the thing. Physics is, in some cases, especially theoretical physics, has gotten so far from the real world that it'll be a long time before we see an impact. Yeah. You know, relativity is great, but it took a long time before it it got involved in our study of the distant universe and of uh, fusion and fission. And, uh, you know, they had to take it into account in building the LHC. Uh, crazy things like time slowing down as you get closer to the speed of light and stuff like that. So the Higgs boson will make jobs for theoretical physicists. Beyond that, it's not going to do a lot that's exciting. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, because it's like so beyond the everyday practicality yeah. in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. Is there danger that, knowing the human race, is there a danger that it'll be used somehow to eventually develop a weapon? Probably, right? Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> there is such a danger. It's just like quarks. A simple fact of physics. The smaller you get, the more energy is involved per particle. You go from an atom to a nucleus, the size goes down a factor of 10,000, the energy per particle goes up a factor of 10 million. That's weird. Well, we think that particles, the elementary particles, are made of quarks, much smaller. When we find out enough, will we be able to convert that into energy, meaning a bomb? I don't know. It's kind of scary. Indeed. So we'll keep our eyes open. And I have one more question, I guess, here for you before we wrap things up, and that's just, um, you know, I'm probably going to be asking, like, every guest we have this year about the, about the whole 2012 thing. You know, what's your take on not just, like, you know, sort of the build-up to it and what might happen and all that, which I don't really believe anything's going to happen, but, you know, it's good to have people weigh in on it. And sort of also what do you take on just the, the frenzy behind it, if you will? Because, I mean, they've already made movies and there's been countless books and TV shows about <laughs> about next year. <laughs> Yeah, if there is a next year. Yeah, I've made my reservations already, yeah. Uh, I am not a big believer in something spectacular happening. What is it, December the 12th? I forget. Yeah, 21st, uh, I think, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't worry about it. And uh, I think it, 
people like to talk about things that, that they can't be held accountable for. If you say something terrible is going to be happening a year from now, well, okay, up until then, uh, people are going to listen to you. If it happens, it doesn't matter. Indeed, <laughs> yeah. And if it doesn't, oh, well, another prophet was wrong. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Well, I'd like to hope that the whole paranormal community will, you know, if, if nothing happens, that we'll sort of smarten up and maybe maybe sort of uh, weed some of these, some of these uh, people out who've been really behind a lot of the, I guess you could say, predictions behind this whole thing. Rumor-mongering? There you go. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Rumor-mongering, you know? So, you know, maybe we'll smarten up and be like, okay, well, we can cross, like, all these people off the list here, people we should be listening to. But um, unfortunately, I feel like they'll they'll survive, you know? Oh, yes. They'll have a new paradigm. (laughs) Uh, Oh, yeah. It'll be 2020 or bust. Uh um, and, and so, okay, so that wraps up the, the, the listener questions and my questions and the big question, of course, what's next for you? What's going on with Stan Friedman here in 2012 uh, that people can look forward to? Well, I don't know. They can go to Roswell. They can go to the MUFON conference. It's going to be in Kentucky, I understand, and I have been told that I will be asked to speak there. Uh, I don't have a lot of programs. Well, there is one in April. It's on my website. Um, there is a Southwest tour. Oh. which I uh, will go to the Trinity site. It's only open two days a year where the first atomic bomb was exploded. It will go to Roswell, Los Alamos. That'll be fun, and I'll be on the bus uh, and giving talks and so forth. That's in April. Uh, and uh, who knows beyond that? I didn't know last year that I would be as busy as I was this past year, and I'm hoping I'll still be busy. So absolutely, check yeah. out the website, www.stantonfriedman.com. We'll keep you informed. Excellent, excellent. How about any, uh, obviously you're writing for the MUFON Journal still and, and for UFO yeah. Magazine, but any uh, big book projects? What about the Stan Friedman memoir? I've been asking you for every well, year. you know, that is part of this deal with... Uh, Magic Men, the right to our life story. So as that proceeds, we may get a memoir out of that. Nice. Don Schmidt and I both. So uh, I'm hoping. Yeah, many of us are. I've, I've been asking for it every year. I hope we can uh, That'll be fun. get to it soon. Air the dirty linen. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, uh, I can't thank you enough, Stan, for coming back for the seventh annual holiday special. It's it's always a thrill and uh you know, I, I, I feel like I laugh more with you than any guest we have on the show because we have such a good time, and, and it's just so laid back and so enjoyable. And I really love how the uh, the listeners here have embraced this and really contributed some amazing questions and stuff that I never would have thought to ask you. So thanks to them. And, uh, you know, just I can't thank you enough. It's, it's been a, a thrill. It's a thrill every year. And I'm already looking forward to the eighth annual holiday special uh, in 2012. I wonder what we'll be talking about then. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, Stan, and happy holidays. You too. That does it for the 7th Annual BOA Audio Holiday Special. Big, big thanks to the father of modern-day ufology, Stanton Friedman, for joining the festivities once again. Be sure to check out his website, www.stantonfriedman.com, and do yourself a favor and pick up one of Stan's outstanding books. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback, and originally I was going to askew the listener feedback here because this episode really was jam-packed with listener feedback from a whole bunch of different folks all over the net 
who contributed their questions for Ask Stanton Friedman, but I wanted to highlight a couple of emails and make sure we incorporated as many folks as possible here now that we're in the end run of Season 6. The first email comes from Trait, and here's what he has to say. Hello from the frozen tundra of Scotland. Well, miserable, wet, and cold. Just found the site a few weeks ago through Rich Dolan's page. Just wanted to say that I've listened and have been very impressed with some of the interviews, especially Bruce Rocks, Timothy Good, Jim Mars, and, of course, Rich Dolan. Keep up the good work, and just remember, the show is popping up all over the world. Cheers. Trait in Scotland. Thank you for writing in, Trait. Wanted to highlight here one of our international listeners. Amazing. Put the pushpin in Scotland now, my friends. BOA Audio has reached all the way across the pond and into Scotland, so we've got listeners over there as well. Thank you for writing in, Trait. Glad to hear you've enjoyed some of the interviews here on the program. Keep digging into the archive. I'm sure you're going to find a plethora of episodes that will whet your esoteric appetite. Next email comes from Phil in Montreal, another international listener. Here's what he has to say. Just a little note to follow up my donation from last week. I really dig your show, and I've been sharing it with my awake and open-minded friends at work. Our lunchtime conversations are now so much more interesting, and don't even get me started about what we get into at the bar on Thursdays. When I was about five in 1979, I saw two tall charcoal black aliens with glowing red almond eyes in my backyard while my mother was tending to her garden. Her back was to us the whole time, apparently oblivious to it all. Ever since that day and throughout a lifetime of high strangeness, I seek answers and find myself digging through your audio archives. Peace out, Phil in Montreal. That is an amazing story, Phil. Weird, weird stuff. You should try drawing maybe a picture of these aliens or you say us in the email. So I'd like to know who you were with and maybe what the other person saw and if they recall this experience. Very uh, bizarre recollection from your childhood. Interesting, too, what the aliens were doing just wandering around in your backyard, apparently in the daytime. Very strange stuff. Thank you, of course, for your donation. It is hugely appreciated, Phil. Uh, you know, you're helping us get into the black here as we close the book on 2011, so I can't thank you enough for helping us out in that respect. And I really wanted to read this email especially here because I was just blown away that Phil is sharing the program with his co-workers and they're talking about it at work. I mean, I've said before how humbling and really just awe-inspiring it is that we're helping folks get through their work day all over the world and helping them get through the downtime by providing the entertainment that we do here via BOA Audio. And now I'm hearing that Phil is sharing it with his friends at work, which is even more amazing. There's like a whole crew of folks up there in Montreal right now listening to BOA Audio and then talking about it around the water cooler and hopefully talking about it at the bar on Thursdays. So, Thank you, and a big shout-out to all the folks who work with Phil. Thank you for uh, tuning in to the program, and throw back a few cold ones for me at the bar, please. And we'll close the mailbag on those two emails so we can keep this thing rolling and get it out to folks before the Christmas holiday. The last thing I want to do is post the program on the 26th. That would be a nightmare, so 
We're hoping to get it to you on the 23rd, but in order to do that, we're going to keep it tight here on the mailbag. But I also want to mention and thank all the great folks out there who sent holiday wishes. I've been getting a bunch of emails from people just wishing me a happy holidays. And again, humbling stuff. Thank you, folks, who have been sending in the emails. I really appreciate it. And right back at you. I hope all you folks out there and all of the amazing BOA Audio listeners have a very Merry Christmas, a Happy Hanukkah, and a Festivus that does not include too many grievances. With that said, if you'd like to be a part of future installments of BOA Audio Listener Feedback, here is the means to get in touch with me. You can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com or go to banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com, and click the contact button, or head on over to the official BOA forum, the US of E.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. Sign up, join in on the conversations. We talk about BOA audio there. We talk about the world of the paranormal. We talk about pop culture as well. We like to call it BOA's Paranormal Playground, the United States of Esoterica. Come on over and join in on the fun. And, of course, I would be remiss if I did not mention that I am a part of Facebook and Twitter. So if you want to meet up with me on those sites, just punch in Benal, B-I-N-N-A-L-L, and I'll pop up on the search engine. Feel free to befriend me, follow me, or poke me. It's all good, and I'd be happy to have you a part of my online circle of friends. Up next, please allow me to thank and give holiday wishes to the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff. Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, Bruce Pretty, Tony Morrill, our contributing cartoonist Andy Carolan, and our webmaster Jeremy Boston. The BOA staff is kind of taking it easy as we roll through the holiday season, but they're going to be coming up with some amazing stuff in 2012, and we've got a bunch of cool new features that we're working on for Banal of America in the new year as well. So stay tuned to BOA for all that good stuff, and allow me to plug the website once again. If you're only listening to BOA audio and you're not reading the columns at Banal of America, then you're only getting half the story B-O-A, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. Now comes the time in the program where I take my hat off and pass it around to the BOA audio listeners and ask you to make a donation. Hopefully you have not spent your entire holiday budget here and or you've got a little change left over post-holidays and you can help us out by making a donation to Banal of America. How do you make a donation? That's simple. You head on over to Banal of America and you click the PayPal button. It's right there on the left-hand side of the screen. That'll bring you to PayPal. They'll walk you through the process. It's safe, secure, and simple. But what if you don't trust the Internet? You don't want your information floating around there in the ether and you'd rather make a donation via snail mail, well, you're in luck because we've got the BOAPO box, and here is the address for that. Tim Benall, B-I-N-N-A-L-L, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass, 01866, and you spell Pinehurst, P-I-N-E-H-U-R-S-T. So altogether, it is Tim Benall, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass, 01866. 
And if you send us a donation via snail mail, please make the donation payable to Tim Benal and not Benal of America because my bank will not cash those donations. And please include some form of correspondence so I can reach out and thank you for your donation. As we say all the time here at the end of the program, no donation is too small and all donations go towards Benal of America and BOA Audio to help keep the website and the audio series up and running, freely available and commercial free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Next time on the program, it will be 2012, folks. That's right. It is time once again for our year in review episode. Last year's program caused quite a stir in the world of online esoterica, and I have a feeling that this year's episode will be no different. Unfortunately, our good buddy Nick Redfern is going to be traveling for the holidays, so he is going to be unavailable for our year-in-review episode, but we've still got longtime BOA friend and personal good buddy of mine, the man behind Radio Mysterioso. I'm talking about, of course, Greg Bishop. He's going to be joining me for the year-in-review, and I have a feeling, obviously we have not taped the program yet, but I have a feeling that it is going to turn into a 2011 jam session where we cover the big stories of the year and sort of just talk about the state of ufology and the paranormal as we enter the much-anticipated year of 2012. So you're definitely going to want to tune in for that one because it is sure to generate a lot of talk and hopefully generate a lot of food for thought for all the great BOA audio listeners out there. It is yet another tradition from BOA. It is our year-end episode with Greg Bishop. That'll be coming at you right after the new year, hopefully within the first couple of days of 2012. So stay tuned to BOA for that one. And on that note, we close the book on the 7th Annual BOA Audio Holiday Special and 2011. Big, big thanks once again to the iconic father of modern-day ufology, the great one, Stanton Friedman, for joining us in the festivities once again. Thanks to our buddy Pete Diggins for providing the theme music to this installment of the program. Check out his website, www.aurophonic.com, A-U-R-O-P-H-O-N-I-C.com. Thanks to our international listeners, Trait and Phil, for their contributions in BOA Audio listener feedback. And, of course, big, big thanks to all you folks out there, the hardcore BOA Audio listeners, the folks who are sticking around to the very end I like to think of the BOA Audio listeners as an extended family, and it just warms my heart that we all come together here for the holiday season with Stan and, uh, you know, gather around the campfire and enjoy some UFO discussion with some eggnog and gingerbread cookies. It is truly one of the proudest accomplishments I have with regards to this program, and that is the BOA Audio Holiday Special. And to share it all with you guys year after year is just awe-inspiring and breathtaking so thank you to the boa audio listeners you guys are the very very best i hope you all have an amazing holiday season have a very safe and happy new year don't do anything i wouldn't do which isn't much but don't do anything too crazy either folks be safe out there we want you around 
and listening to the program in 2012 and beyond. And on that note, thank you once again for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist, and thank you for making BOA Audio a part of your holiday traditions. Until next time, this is Tim Manal, thanking you for listening and signing off.